For those remaining in the auditorium and watching online, please take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Pastor Luke began this chapter last Sunday with verses 1 and 2. And we're hoping to cover verses 3 through 17 this morning. 3 through 17. Hebrews chapter 12. If you're visiting with us, thank you for being here. And perhaps you don't have a Bible. There should be one under the chairs in front of you. And in that particular uh, copy of God's Word, it's on page 948. And if you don't have a Bible, please take that one with you. Our gift uh, to you, everything we do here is rooted in, founded on, uh, grounded by the Word of God. This is not our opinion, but is the revealed Word of the one who spoke all things into existence. So Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 through 17, we want to look at this morning. The title for the sermon this morning is Perspective. And oftentimes what we need is not a change in our circumstances, but a change in the perspective that we have about our circumstances. Rarely... Does God miraculously change our circumstances, although there are certainly times that he does? But more often than not, he has a great purpose and a design, as we just sung, for the circumstances that he has placed us in. And our perspective needs to be his and not ours. We enter into this part of the letter or the sermon the pastor is preaching to encourage those in his audience, Jewish Christians who are wondering, is it worth it to follow Jesus? Seems like a lot of effort, and there seems to be persecution simply because we say that we follow Jesus, and so maybe it would just be better not to rock the boat, not to upset the apple cart, we'll just go back to what we were ethnically and religiously, and we just won't go on with Jesus, at least not publicly. And the pastor is saying, no, Jesus is everything. Jesus is all. He is more than just worth it. He is supreme over all things. And now we get into the last two chapters of this letter slash sermon. And he wants to uh, apply what, he's, what he said very directly and practically to us. And so perspective. Now this is a very famous story slash joke. I'm sure all of you have heard it, but I thought it was a great illustration of perspective. Story is told that there is a U.S. warship that is traveling and sees a light in the distance and so sends a radio message and says, vessel that is so many nautical miles uh, off our bow, this is a U.S. warship, please change your course 30 degrees. Reply comes back, no. You need to change your course 180 degrees. U.S. warship says, this is the USS Dwight D. Eisenhower. We are a Nimitz-class aircraft carrier, one of the largest vessels in one of the largest navies in the world. We demand that you change your course by 30 degrees, or we may be forced to take drastic action. Pregnant pause, and then the reply comes back, this is a lighthouse, your call. Perspective, perspective. We only have ours. We need 
others, and we are always vitally in need of God's. And he wants to give that to us in the passage before us this morning. Hebrews chapter 12, starting to read at verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears." This is the word of the Lord. In the first place then, this morning, we need to see God's perspective on suffering. What is our perspective on suffering? We will do anything in our power to avoid suffering. We hate suffering. Let's be honest, we hate even any minor inconvenience. In our world, there would be no lineups, there'd be no other cars on the road, it would just be smooth sailing for everything that we want to do. We don't like to suffer. We love our comfort. We like things exactly the way that we want them. The temperature just right, the food just the way we like it, everything in life, we like it to be just so. And yet, God calls us to suffering for our own good. And his perspective on suffering is that through it, he is doing something. There's a goal, there's a reason behind suffering. And so in verse three, he starts by saying, consider. This is the only time in the New Testament that this Greek word appears. And in extra biblical literature, it has the idea of deeply studying. In our context, perhaps, to get a spreadsheet put together, a report, to do research, to be deeply invested in this, 
This is something that he teed up in verse 2, but he continues here in verse 3. And so we need to deeply study Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Of all the things that we could be knowledgeable about, of all the individuals that we could study and attempt to emulate, Jesus should be the one that we study the most. Jesus should be the one that we consider the most. We need to deeply study him, his incarnation. How glorious is Jesus? What glory does Jesus have? The glory he says in John 17 that he shared with his father before anything else was, before anything was created. What glory does Jesus have as God and very God? We get offended when somebody says or does or even implies something we don't like. But how glorious are we, really? How glorious is Jesus? What did he give up? How much does he love us to do what he did? As we study Philippians 2 and other passages, to leave heaven and become one of us with all of its limitations. For infinity to robe himself with finiteness. His life. How frustrated would you and I be if we were actually perfect and not just perfect in our own minds and were surrounded every day by imperfect people? How frustrating is it for us to interact with the people that we have to on a daily basis right now? We fail people, people fail us. They don't do what's expected. They don't do what's right. They don't act with integrity. They don't get it. How frustrating it is for us. Can you imagine the love that Christ had for us throughout his life for perfection to be enrobed with human flesh and surrounded by human imperfection on a daily basis? I mean, Jesus numerous times tells his disciples that he must die. And in those times, it seems the disciples are, are not even cluing in whatsoever. They're arguing over who's the best. They're having a, a deep discussion <laughs> over who's more awesome. And Christ is trying to let them know the suffering that is coming for him. Consider his death. Again, we get upset when somebody takes our parking space or doesn't match our high standards that we hold other people to and not ourselves, but we'll move on. We get upset and offended and easily perturbed by any number of things. How is it that the Son of God, God himself in human flesh, had people mock him slap his face, rip his beard off of his face, spit in his face. He is simultaneously allowing these individuals to breathe and their hearts to beat while allowing them to mock him and cruelly mistreat him. The new king of England, Charles, was coronated recently 
how out of place it would have been if during that ceremony someone from the crowd had rushed up to Charles, slapped him in the face, and spat on him as he is robed in all of his royal regalia. And yet, who is Charles but just another man? This is Jesus, the one who spoke all things into existence. The one who has seraphim bowing before him every single second crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. And there he is before puny, weak, finite human beings who he spoke into existence, allowing them to mock him, torture him, spit on him. Consider his resurrection. Consider that glorious Sunday when he rose back to life from the grave. We've sung about that this morning. Deeply study these things. Because if this was the path that God the Father had for his own son, why do we presume that his path for us is going to be a life of ease and comfort? Where is the sacrifice in your life? Where is the sacrifice in mine? How often does God get our leftovers? After everything is comfortable and easy for us, if I have anything left and if I'm in the right mood, I might give something to God. How counter to his own son, Jesus Christ. Someone posted on Facebook this week, you have every right to complain when you've done more for God than he's done for you. Consider, the author of Hebrews says, consider him, consider Jesus. What he did for you. How deeply he loves you. Despite all of your sin, all of your inconsistencies, all of your imperfection, consider how much he loves you. Consider the cost it took to make you his son, the father to make you his son or daughter. Consider. What are we considering? Considering his endurance in the second place. Consider him who endured. How often we want to quit. I'm done. I've had enough. I can't do this anymore. If we were in Jesus' position, how often would we want to quit? I'm not sure we'd last a day incarnated. We've rarely, if ever, been asked to give up much. But in those rare times where we have sacrificed, we grieve that loss. Consider Jesus, who left heaven's glory to come down to this earth full of sin and destruction. Consider how he endured. He knew. He knew before anything was ever spoken into existence. He knew. He knew the plan. It was his plan. He knew when the time was just right, Galatians 4.4, he was going to be sent. He was going to become one of us. And he knew the plan involved crucifixion. He knew the whole way along. And he says that to his disciples. 
They don't get it. But nobody got it more than Jesus. And in that garden, what does he say? Father, if there's any way, if there's any way to let this cup pass for me, consider that the one who was always the delight of his father, shared glory with his father forever. There had never been a time where Jesus had not, not shared glory with the father and the father with him. And yet he was about to become the object of God's wrath. That is a cup that those who do not have Christ as their Lord and Savior will drink from for eternity. Suffering apart from the saving presence of God in hell forever. That is a weighty cup. And Jesus says, if there's any way that I don't have to drink that, Father, let's do that. But, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He endured. Note the source and the severity of his pain. He endured from who? From sinners. Again, these individuals who have these titles, Pilate and Herod, with all of this human pomp and circumstance, believing themselves to be something. And Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. What did he say to his disciples, to Peter? Peter, put up your sword. Do you not think at, this time, at any time I can call 10 legions of angels to my side? And yet he endured suffering from sinners and such hostility, the severity of his pain, crucifixion, from which we get the word excruciating, the pain he endured from sinners. Consider that. Make that your life's study, the author of Hebrews says. Why? So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. The word picture here in Greek is of a, finish, a finished race, someone that has run a marathon, run an ultra-marathon, their bodily functions aren't working correctly. Their muscles are screaming. They can't feel their legs. Their lungs are burning. And they cross that finish line, and when they cross that finish line, they just collapse at the end. They've given everything they have. And the author of Hebrews, the pastor, says, don't do that before you cross the finish line. He will hold us fast. Do not give up. Do not give up. Does it hurt? Yes. Is there suffering in this life? Yes. Is there suffering in this life because you follow Jesus Christ? Yes. Don't give up. Jesus didn't. There is nothing God calls you to that he has not already done. There is nothing God calls you to that he will not equip you for. There is nothing God calls you to endure that he does not have a purpose for. Keep going. C.S. Lewis says in the problem of pain, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to arouse a deaf world. 
What is Satan's claim against Job? It's easy, Job, to follow God. Because everything's great, you're the richest man in the East. Why wouldn't you follow God? It's working out pretty good for you. What is Satan's claim to God? Take it all away, and he'll curse you and die. Because what he cares about more than you is the ease and the comfort. And Satan realizes it is not so because of God and God's grace. Is God truly everything to us? His perspective on suffering is that it has a purpose. It has meaning and significance. There's a reason for it. What did Pastor Luke bring us through? How did Jesus endure for the joy that was set before him? He knew that it had a purpose. He knew there was meaning to it. So therefore, how does God do that in our lives? Certainly through suffering, but he kind of doesn't really switch gears, but just sort of expands on it to talk to us about discipline. So what is God's perspective on discipline? What's our perspective on discipline? Love it. Give me more of it. Discipline, yes. Typically, when we think of discipline, what comes to our minds is corrective discipline. The type of discipline we may have experienced as a child, the memories of which we are still trying to block out of our minds. Corrective discipline. We were wrong and our parents corrected us. That's usually what comes to mind when we think of discipline. But as we've seen earlier on in the book of Hebrews, there is also formative discipline. That there is character that our parents are trying to instill in us and so they discipline us not because we've done anything wrong, but because they want us to become certain types of people. And so maybe they instilled chores. You have to do certain chores. And those need to be done before you're allowed to go out and play. Now that's not discipline in the sense that the child's done anything wrong, but that is discipline in the sense of it's disciplining them to be the type of person that does what is right and does it well and doesn't become self-centered and self-focused, that it's all about me. Many different ways of formative discipline. But there's another type of discipline that in that previous sermon we did not draw attention to, but it is that type of discipline that I believe the author of Hebrews, the pastor, is calling our attention to. And that is preventative discipline, what we might call training. If we look in the field of athletics and you see a coach who's out on the field on the football field or soccer pitch or whatever it is, or maybe in the ice rink, and he's asking his players to run laps. Now maybe it's because the previous game, some of them dropped a pass, and so that, maybe that is corrective discipline. But it's preventative discipline. It's training. Because in a week's time or whatever it is, after that practice, there is a game coming. And it's gonna call on those players their best effort. They're gonna to have to pull from somewhere deep within to be able to endure the contest that is ahead of them. And so the coach wisely, as one coach famously said, coaching is getting people to do what they don't want to do in order to achieve the result they desire. That's training, that's preventative discipline. It's that type of discipline that the author of Hebrews draws our attention to. In the first place, he notes that God is a good father because he disciplines us. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted the point of shedding your blood. He reminds them things could be worse. Christ went all the way to the cross for you. You've not become martyrs yet. 
But have you forgotten that God is disciplining because he loves you? Now there's a perspective change. You ever had somebody say to you, your parents say to you, this is going to hurt me more than it does you? Anybody ever believe them? I'm doing this because I love you? Anybody ever like, oh, that is so good, Dad. Yeah, all right, go ahead. Yeah, that's great. I love it. But God's perspective on discipline is if God didn't care, if the coach didn't care, if the parent didn't care, they wouldn't be investing in this training, in this discipline. The reason why you are being disciplined, not correctively or necessarily even formatively, although it's a part of it, but preventatively, is because you are sons and daughters of the Most High. There are two responses that are we are not to have to God's discipline. He says, my son, quoting Proverbs 3, 11 and 12, which was read during liturgy, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. All of us in here, other than those that are moving towards that stage, were once teenagers. And in those teen years, when we were disciplined, our typical response was, thank you, mom and dad. That was a great lecture. One of your best, I might add. That. I'm going to put that in my diary. That was fantastic. No, what was our normal response to teen years? Whatever, right? We treated lightly the discipline of our parents. What do you know? It's amazing that when children turn 13, their parents overnight become morons. You don't know anything. What an idiot. The author of Hebrews says, be careful. One response we can have to discipline is to lightly regard it. And the author of Hebrews says, do not do that. The reason why you are being disciplined is because you are sons and daughters of the Most High. Do not take that position lightly. Esau did, and he's going to get to him in verses 16 and 17. But do not be weary. We can sometimes become overwhelmed by the discipline of God. We compare ourselves to other people particular other people that we think are less spiritual than we are. Their life seems easy and my life seems hard. God, why? Why me? Why now? And the author of Hebrews says, remember, this path that God has you on is the path he's, he's called you to. It's your journey. There's a reason for it and there's purpose and significance to it. You remember Peter? Love Peter. What does he say at the end of John's gospel? Jesus brings a hold. Do you love me, Peter? Yes, you know I love you. All that stuff. And then they're walking down the beach, and, and Peter, trying to get the heat off a little bit, says, well, what about that guy? Jesus says, don't worry about that guy. Ever had this in your home? That's not fair. Jesus says, don't worry about him. If it's my will that he is still alive when I return a second time, what is that to you, Peter? I have a plan for you, an individual training regimen for you, because you have things that you need to work on, that I need to chip and chisel away from you. I have a plan and a purpose for you, Peter. God is a good father. He disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It's for discipline that you have to endure because God is treating you as sons. If you don't have discipline, you're illegitimate children and not sons. 
if life is easy, we may question whether in fact God actually cares. But we flip it around the other way, don't we? God, if you really cared about me, my life would be amazing based on how I think my life should go. But the writer of Hebrews says, no, you need to have God's perspective, switch that around. If your life was exactly the way you wanted it, you, would, you should actually question whether or not you're even children of God. Because if there's no discipline, if kids are allowed to just run amok and do whatever they want, it's because their parents don't care, not because they do. Because it does not pr produce responsible, productive adults. What coach would there be to say to his team, guys, let's not be a little tough on you. So for the rest of the season, no practice. Yeah, don't worry about that. You know, try your best. Have fun out there, guys. That's not a good coach. Notice that not, a, not only has God a good father, he's the best father. The author of Hebrews compares. He says, we had earthly fathers that disciplined us and we respected them. Did they discipline us perfectly? No. They over-disciplined, they under-disciplined, they disciplined at the wrong times, they disciplined at the wrong ways. And yet, through it all, as we look towards Father's Day, and we're not talking about abuse, that's a whole different topic, but good discipline, we can look back and say, at the time, as he's going to say for us in verse 11, it didn't seem pleasurable, but looking back, I can say, okay, dad had a reason, he had a, had a purpose. I can look back on a coach, I can look back on a teacher, I can look back on some of these relationships and go, oh, okay, I see it now. How many times have parents said, just wait till you have kids? Anybody said that? You'll get it one day. I don't know what you're talking about. I know everything now. All right. One day you'll understand a little bit better. There's that scene from the original Karate Kid where Daniel is being trained by his mentor, Mr. Miyagi. And he has him do things, sand the deck, wash his car, paint his fence, now he has them do specific motions, but they're all chores. And there's a scene in that movie where Daniel comes and he just sort of explodes in, in so this teen anger to say to his mentor, what's the point of all of this? All I'm doing is doing chores for you. I thought you said you were going to teach me how to do karate. I want to fight those guys that beat me up and beat them up instead. And just as he's about to leave, Mr. Miyagi says, daniel son, stop, turn around, paint the fence. So Daniel starts painting the fence and then throws some punches and he blocks them. Sand the floor, wash the car. Oh, oh, okay. Here I thought I was just giving you free labor, but you, there was a purpose to that. Oh, okay, now I get it. So if that's true in the human realm, the author of Hebrews says, is that not true in the eternal realm? Do you not think that the God who spoke all things into existence, who already is in the future, does not have a plan for this? As you sit here questioning and doubting and, and feeling like God is unfair, he says, listen, if you understand that your, your earthly father had a plan and a purpose, do you understand that your heavenly father does? They disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. 
but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. God's goal is that you would look like his son, Jesus Christ. You would have the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace. That you would know who he is and begin to reflect his character. There's a goal in this. We struggle. We don't like discipline. Any of the forms of discipline. But there's a reason for it. And so God has his goal in mind, verse 11. At the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. There is a goal. And when we have God's perspective on discipline, it helps us to endure. And so we come then to the third point, which is God's perspective on endurance. There's a race to be run. And it's not a 100-meter dash. It's not a short race. It's a long race. It's the race of our lives, as was pointed out last week by Pastor Luke. So how are we going to endure? We need God's perspective on suffering. This was never called us to an easy path. This is going to be tough. There's going to require sacrifice. So consider Jesus. God's perspective on discipline. He's training us. There's a reason for this. And then God's perspective on endurance. First of all, we see that we are to run well together. Therefore, returning back to what he had talked about uh, in the back half of verse 3, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees, quoting from Isaiah, as we also had part of our liturgy. Be encouraged. Be strengthened. Run well together because, he says, make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Making straight paths for your feet, what does he mean by that? There's a couple of things that he could have in mind. One is that the goal is Christ, so don't deviate. He's already said that. What are we supposed to do? Look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Don't look back. Don't look sideways. Look ahead. How many races? There's all YouTube fail compilations of people that looked back, celebrated too early, and got past. Went from first to second. Don't look back. Don't look beside. Look to Jesus. Straight ahead, straight paths. But there's also in this uh, idea, clean off the path for others who are also on it. So recently I was biking on the Confederation Trail, and there's a tree limb across the path. There's two options. Go around it, leave it for somebody else, or attempt to remove it so that other people who are cycling or jogging or whatever don't have to avoid it the way that we did. Help others along the way. Why? Because so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. There are other people in the race with us. And the goal isn't just that we will make it. It's the goal is that we will all make it. Ephesians says that we all may come to maturity. The church is only as strong as the weakest Christian in it. And do we care? Do we love? Do we compare ourselves amongst ourselves and as long as we are more spiritual than other people, do we think, well, that's great, I'm, I'm doing well? Or is our heart of compassion for those around us to help them on their journey so they too can attain the prize at the end. 
It's not about us. It never was, never will be. It's about him and others. There's a quote from one of the characters in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings and the Fellowship of the Ring. They're gathered in Lothlorien and they are tired, but they're gathering their strength to continue in their fight against the Dark Lord Sauron. And Haldir says, Indeed, in nothing is the power of the Dark Lord more clearly shown than in the estrangement that divides all those who still oppose him. Disunity is Satan's desire. If Satan can get in and put in someone's heart a little bit of hatred, a little bit of despising, a little bit of looking down on, he will do that. Because if he can divide the church from within, then he can win. The goal is not us. When you read the word you in the New Testament, check how often that is you singular and how often that is you plural, collective. Most of the time, it is you plural. We read scripture individually because we do everything in life individually because everything's always about us. And, and the writers of scripture view things collectively. Run well together. How many times has there been corporate encouragement noted in the Hebrews already? Hebrews 3.13, 4.1, 4.11, 6.11, 10.25. Encourage one another. Lift one another up. Pray for one another. All of this and so much more. Why is the author even writing this book? To do that very thing. Guys, it's come to my attention that you're considering dropping out of the race. Don't do that. Keep going for Jesus. Endure. Run well, but run well together. Don't be divided. Don't be discouraged. Don't be pushing people out of the way. Don't be tripping people as they're trying to run their race. We were at a conference a couple years back, and somebody asked one of the presenters, what has been the greatest obstacle in your ministry? And without skipping a beat, this woman said, myself and other Christians. And how sad is that, because it's true. We are our own worst enemy, and far too often there's far too much friendly fire from fellow Christians. We would rather compare ourselves with ourselves, hate on each other, divide and divide and divide and divide, rather than saying, we all have the same goal, don't we? Are we not following the same person? Are we not running to the same destination? Different races, but all the same destination. Are we not all on the same path? Can we not run well together? And so beware the first hint of bitterness. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Be careful. We have to run well together, and at the first sign of any bitterness, deal with that. This type of bitterness is, is probably an allusion to Deuteronomy 29, and there it is in reference to apostasy. It's not just a denial of God and his power and his working. It is not just a rejection of God, but it is a deep-seated hatred now for God and those who still follow him. Bitterness, this poison. 
Bitterness is the only time we drink poison hoping it hurts somebody else. It's deadly. And it gets down into the deepest part of our hearts and souls. And maybe other people don't see it. But it's there. And as we feed it, you notice what the analogy here, any root of bitterness. It impacts everything. We use this analogy all the time in biblical counseling. If you have an apple tree and you want oranges, you can go out and pick all the apples off and staple oranges onto all the branches. You can try to clean it up from the outside. You can try to change some behavior. You can try to do different things. But what actually needs to change? The root system. Because whatever the tree actually is, whatever the roots are, that's the fruit that's going to come. And eventually, those apples are going to, those oranges are going to rot and fall off, and there will be more apples come out. Got to deal with the heart. So the author of Hebrews says, be careful. I don't like this suffering. I don't like this discipline. I don't like that I've got a different path than somebody else in the church. I deserve better. Be careful, the author of Hebrews says. Beware any root of bitterness. Root it out quickly so that we can have God's perspective consistently. See then, he says, that no one is sexually more unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. It's easy to quit. It's easy to say, I'm too tired, I can't do this. It's easy to say, Jesus isn't worth it. I'm done. But note the example of Esau. Esau had a choice. He was hungry. Jacob says, I will give you this bowl of stew. Just give me your birthright. Pass on to me the blessing that is yours from our father, Isaac. And Esau says, sure, who cares? Treats it lightly. And what happens? There's some more subterfuge by his brother. Tricks him out of it. He comes back to get the blessing. And what does Isaac say to him? The blessing's already been given to your brother Jacob. I cannot give it to you. When it says repent here, this is not Esau actually repentant, like biblically repentant. But he's sorry for how things turned out. He wanted it back, and he couldn't get it. It was already gone. He treated it lightly, and it was gone. So the author of Hebrews says, as he's been saying, chapter 3, chapter 6, chapter 10, and throw, what is he saying? Don't turn back from Jesus. Whatever comes your way, even and especially if it's because of Jesus, he is so worth it. He's so worth it. So stay on the straight path. Keep your focus on Christ. Clear the path for others coming along beside. And anytime there's any bitterness or disunity in your heart, deal with it and deal with it quickly. So you can keep running the race together for the glory of God. Get God's perspective on suffering. It has purpose and meaning and significance. Get God's perspective on discipline. It's because he loves you and it's because of his purpose for you. He's training you for what's to come. And get God's perspective on endurance. It's worth it. It's worth it. Because the prize is him for all eternity. 
and everything else that comes with that. What a glorious hope awaits us. Don't give up. Don't give in. Stay with Christ. If you don't know him this morning, come talk to me, one of our elders, the person who brought you. There's nothing else in this world that can satisfy. He is superior to anything, and he is worth it. For those of us that know him, live that way. Run the race for him. It's not about you. Never was and never will be. It's about him. It's about him. Let's look to him in prayer. Father, thank you. And thank you for the opportunity we have this morning to remember Christ's sacrifice for us as we come to the table of communion. What a, what a beautiful reminder that we need every single day of your love for us. Help us to consider your son and the suffering that he endured for us. Help us to understand and recognize your discipline and what you are accomplishing in us through it. Father, give us pause. Check our hearts. Is there any bitterness or hatred in our hearts? Are we comparing ourselves with others? Are we fighting those who are on the same team with us? Are we engaging in friendly fire? Have we stopped having your perspective on suffering, on discipline and endurance? Give us that perspective anew and afresh, Father, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.